Getting help for patients with rare diseases can often be a large struggle for families. Finding someone who understands and has the experience to properly diagnose and treat can lead to frustration. Often there's no place to go. For long-standing issues, this can lead to bouncing to multiple doctors without resolution of symptoms. For more acute issues, not having an expert available can cause significant morbidity, even mortality. Today on the Pediatric Leadership Podcast, we are going to talk about one of our pediatric endocrinologists who set up a center for treating a rare disease, hyperinsulinism. This is a Cook Children's Podcast. Welcome to Pediatric Leadership, the new medicine with Dr. Justin Smith, helping physicians become innovators in medicine. Now, here's Dr. Justin Smith. Dr. Paul Thornton is a pediatric endocrinologist at Cook Children's and is the founder of the Cook Children's Hyperinsulinism Center, which is one of only two centers in the country focused on this condition. The website for the team lists endocrinologists, pediatric surgeons, and many other medical specialties, as well as coordination between education, social work, and even Ralph Lauren, one of Cook Children's play therapy dogs. So Dr. Thornton, thanks so much for coming on to talk today. We're really excited to hear from you. It's my pleasure, Justin. So first off, just to kind of give us a foundation to talk about the condition, can you explain, I know it's your whole life's work, but can you explain hyperinsulinism and when should a clinician expect it or be looking for it? Hyperinsulinism is a condition where the pancreas, uh, specifically the beta cells which make insulin, have a disconnect between glucose levels in the blood and insulin secretion. And so what happens to these children is that Normally, when the blood sugar drops below 80, insulin secretion is switched off. And in this case, insulin secretion is not switched off. So it causes the blood sugar to continue to drop. And so children with this condition will have hypoglycemia or low blood sugars that occur randomly throughout the day, whether they're eating or not eating. And the problem with the disease is that insulin not only lowers your blood sugar, but it prevents your glycogen reserves from being uh, released from the liver, and it prevents fatty acid oxidation. So not only are these babies and children missing sugar for fuel for the brain, but they also have no lactate and they have no beta-hydroxybutyrate. So as a result, uh, this is a very dangerous condition because what it essentially causes is energy deficiency in the cells in the brain, and when that occurs, the cells are unable to perform their function. They start to shut down. Patients then become lethargic, unresponsive. They have seizures. And those cells can die and they can end up brain damaged. So this is a condition that has a uh, frequency of brain damage of about 20 to 40%. So it's a very serious disease. The other thing that makes it tough is that it tends to present in the newborn period. So most of the affected kids are actually newborn babies with about 60% presenting in the first week of life, and about 20 to 30% after that. And one of the things we've learned here in Cook Children's is that most of the kids who present late were actually missed in the newborn period. And so this has led to recent development of new guidelines uh, that have been propagated by the Pediatric Endocrine Society to help pediatricians and neonatologists recognize which babies who have low blood sugar in the newborn period have a more serious underlying disease such as hyperinsulinism. You know, having worked in uh, out in Abilene where I kind of was the new- newborn doctor, almost neonatologist as well, it is hard because hypoglycemia is relatively common, but hyperinsulinism is is much more rare. So I think that even makes it trickier to sort of parse out who needs to see you and who needs a little sugar for the first few days of life and is going to be fine. Absolutely, Justin. As we know, approximately 50% of babies in the newborn period by two to three hours of age will have a blood sugar less than 50. But what we also know is that 
the body quickly adjusts to the transition from intrauterine to extrauterine life so that by 12 to 24 hours, the average blood sugar is about 60 and by 72 hours, the average baby's blood sugar is around 70. And so what differentiates these babies from normal newborns going through that transition is that their hypoglycemia persists beyond two to three days of life. And not only does it persist, but it's severe so that when you feed the baby with the low blood sugar, it just won't come up and they end up going on IV dextrose. And one of the great things about the new guidelines is that they show pediatricians and neonatologists how to differentiate these babies. So at three days of life, if a baby's still having low blood sugars, what do you do and how do you make the diagnosis? And we're hoping that'll have a big impact on the early recognition and prevention of brain damage in these babies. Overall, do you have sort of numbers as far as the frequency of the condition to kind of give us some context to how rare it actually is? So the data for the United States is that the genetic forms of hyperinsulinism occur in about 1 in 30,000 babies. So it's very rare in terms of diseases, but probably somewhere between 100 and 150 newborns a year being affected. However, the sort of sister disease is transient forms of hyperinsulinism. And this is way more common, occurring probably in 5 to 10% of babies who are born small for gestational age and occurring in association with babies who are born to mothers who have diabetes. So those are far, far more common and yet equally dangerous. It is a fairly rare condition, which means, you know, as an endocrinologist, you're going to be seeing probably the, the worst cases, the cases that filter through to you. What motivated you to, or what got you thinking on the lines of the idea that this condition needed a unique center when the population is smaller? Well, really, my reasoning was exactly what you said in your opening discussion, which was that when patients have rare diseases, doctors tend not to know a lot about them. And I was very fortunate in that I trained with two of the world's leading experts, Lester Baker and Charlie Stanley. And I realized that when patients came and saw those doctors, the quality of care that they got was so much better. The patients learned about their disease. They appreciated the whole team approach where not only did the endocrinologist know what was going on, but so did the neonatologist, the feeding therapist, the nurses on the NICU, uh, the other doctors that are needed to be seeing these patients, the neurologists, the gastroenterologists, the surgeons play a very special role. And what I realized was that if you're just seeing one to two babies a year, you really don't get good at what you're doing. And so by setting up a team, and I was part of the original team in Philadelphia, uh, we realized that we could dramatically improve the quality of care and the long-term outcomes. And having seen some families go through being in other hospitals for 30, 60, 90 days and still at the end of 90 days not knowing what's going on, it really made me realize that these families deserve specialized centers where they can come to, they can be fed into by uh, doctors who make the diagnosis and, and know that they'll get the quality of care that they need. And what I hear in your voice is that clearly there's a personal passion for um, this type of care in this particular condition. I think um, sometimes for um, parents with rare diseases, they're looking for someone with that passion. They want someone who really understands and who really cares about them and what they're going through. And so I think a center not only provides clinical excellence, it also provides sort of a level of understanding that perhaps um, other places that don't see it as often might not, might not quite understand. 
That's absolutely true. A typical example would be our nurses on in the NICU. So because, say, for example, in the last two years, we've seen 25 to 30 babies with this rare disease, our nurses know a lot about this disease. And the first thing the families say to me when I come in the next morning after they got transferred in the middle of the night is, oh, my God, it was such a relief to come in. The nurses knew what was going on. There wasn't a nurse in the other hospital who knew anything. So clearly, the body of knowledge that the multidisciplinary team has creates great reassurance for the families and makes them realize, wow, it was really worth traveling halfway across the United States to come here because these people know what they're doing. And clearly, after a while, they understand that the efficiency of, of having a team that deals with many of these patients is so much greater that we do things far faster, we make decisions quicker, and we like to think that we get better outcomes than those who rarely see a child with this disorder. I think personal passion is often a seed for a center like this, but you know when you're dealing with the rare condition where there won't be a lot of patients coming through, I think the next step past having a personal passion is getting an institution and a, a hospital system on board. So I love to hear a little bit about sort of your experience with that process and how how did you start those first steps of saying, I'd really like to do this and get people on board? Well, Justin, surprisingly, that wasn't as difficult as it sounds like it might have been. Uh, when I first came here in 2003, my main mission was to be the head of the endocrinology department and to really develop it and grow it. And after a couple of years, I realized that passion that I had for hyperinsulinism was not being fed, and I really missed it. So I talked to my colleagues within the group and said, I really think we should do this. We're having to send these babies from Texas up to Philadelphia. Um, there are children in all the neighboring states who need this sort of care. Let's set up a center. So I put together a proposal. I arranged a meeting uh, with Nancy Cycle and the CFO at the time and basically sat down with them and and convinced them of two things. One is that there was a very important medical need for children with this disorder, that there was only one center in the country, and that we as Cook Children's happened to have me who had a passion for this disease. And let's take that to the next step and open up a second center. And not only would we provide the quality of care that our mission in the hospital here is for the patients in our six-county region, but this would become... Basically, we would take care of the children in the southern parts of the United States. And so that was really the number one. And then the second uh, way approach we had was we looked at the financial ramifications because we were talking about investing a lot of upfront money, training staff. Uh, it turns out that over time, I became a holder for an investigational new drug application for 18F-DOPA, and that was a very expensive and costly project. But at the bottom line, I think, is that Nancy Cycle looked at what we were doing for the children and said, you know what, I know this is going to be expensive. I know there's going to be a lot of upfront costs, but this is the right thing to do for the children. And if we have someone with my passion and my skills, that the medical center should really capitalize that and, and take it to the next level. And whereas prior to this, it was not common for Cook Children's to see itself as a, a player in the national health Healthcare, they started to see that, wow, we could become a part of something big here. And the thing that's exciting about that is now there are several programs in the institution that have that national recognition. So it's been a really good experience for me. 
Yeah, I certainly see um, what you did as sort of a forerunner to a lot of the programs we have. In fact, in the next episode, we're going to have uh, Dr. Warren Marks come on and talk about his motion lab. And I think you see a lot of the same processes, you see a lot of the same ideas um, that sort of you see running through your experience, um, uh, running through his. So I'm excited to talk to him about that. One thing that I I really want to communicate through this podcast is that if you want to make changes, you have to have passion, but you also have to be willing to just step out and say, look, I'm willing to do this. And if you can find an institution that you can be involved with that will support those things, you can really, really make a difference um, and really, really affect the lives of kids who need help, who are out there or desperate for someone like you who has a passion about it. And having institutional support, I think, really allowed this all to happen the way in the way that it did. You're absolutely correct. I mean, the, the two key components are the person who's going to drive the team approach, um, but clearly having an institution that supports its physicians and that is really supportive of the concept of providing quality care primarily as the goal rather than the financial gain as the goal is critically important. And I've spoken to many of my colleagues who are equally passionate about hyperinsulinism as I am, but yet they've not, they've struggled to be able to get their institutions to recognize that the investment in in a multidisciplinary team is worth it in terms of how it improves the quality of care for patients. One of the things that we haven't talked about on the podcast, but I think it does play a role in this as well, is the endowed chair program for Cook Children. So maybe you could talk just briefly about what that role um, that was given to you, I believe you were the first one or one of the early ones for sure, how that sort of freed up and gave you the ability to pursue some of these passions. The Endowed Chair Program is really a great innovation here in Cook Children's because in most academic centers, there are endowed chairs. And the pathway to get an endowed chair is is pretty clear in those institutions. Here, however, it had never been done before. And uh, Dr. Warren Marks and I were very fortunate that we were the first recipients. What the Endowed Chair does is it allows me to take time from my clinical work. So, for example... Prior to getting the endowed chair, I was doing seven half-day clinics a week. And after getting the endowed chair, I was able to cut that down to four half-day clinics a week. This gave me more time to focus on program development. I spent a lot of time traveling, going out and talking about hypoglycemia. I was a lead author on the new Pediatric Endocrine Society recommendations for the management of patients with hypoglycemia. And none of that could have been done without the support of the endowed chair. So the endowed chair program here in Cook Children's now has five recipients. And I think, you know, if you were to talk to us all, you'd find that each one is doing really good work and really improving the care of children. And it's a really excellent system. And I would be strongly in favor of ongoing endowed chairs and increasing the number of the endowed chairs. So it's been a a wonderful tool to allow me the time and energy to develop the program and set it up the way it's running now. And I think I've seen that, you know, in all the different uh, recipients. You're right. They are doing things that are really, really exciting and and I think are really going to make a difference for the lives of our patients. Before we close out, I think it's just important to give you an opportunity to um, just say um, what's sort of the best way for a physician who's concerned about a child with hypoglycemia, perhaps concerned about hyperinsulinism, what's the best way for them to reach out to you or to reach out to the center to get some advice or to get a patient over here? Well, there's really lots of ways uh, that we can do it. We have, of course, Cook Direct Connect is probably the best way because you can basically call in and they will get you in touch with one of the endocrinology team almost immediately. 
So that's always excellent. We have our own website, uh, the hyperinsulinism website, as part of Cook Children's. And through that, you can contact us. There's a lot of information on there uh, about how the hyperinsulinism team works, who the members are, and information about the disease state. So it's a very useful tool for physicians who have a baby with hyperinsulinism that they're working through the process and they would like to give their families more information. So that's good. We have, of course, a Cook Children's Hyperinsulinism email, and so they can email. And then, of course, anyone can either email me or contact the endocrinology department. So I do find that I get a lot of email consultations. Usually the cases are complicated, so I'll tend to call the physician back, and we can talk and we can guide them through the management to get them to the point where they have to decide does this child need to be sent down to Cook Children's or not. And we'll put links to um, all those various ways of getting in touch with Dr. Thornton on the show notes for this episode. And you can find those at checkupnewsroom.com slash pediatric leadership. So Dr. Thornton, I really want to thank you for coming on today. I really want to thank you for helping us see um, sort of the process and the passion involved in developing a center like this for children with rare disease. And I'd like to give you a final minute just to close out on anything else you'd like to tell the audience. Well, Justin, thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. What I would say to you physicians out there is who do have a passion for a disease, no matter how rare or how common it is, is to think about what does it take to get to the next level of providing care for those children and then take a proposal to leadership because leadership is very interested in anything that we can do as physicians to improve the quality of care for our patients. And the second thing is Don't be afraid to go for it. Um, It's a very rewarding part of your day when you're working with a very specialized disease or, or a group of patients that you have a particular fondness for. And you automatically find that you have better relationships with your patients. They're very appreciative of all the work that you go to to be able to provide them with the quality of care that they need. And so for me, it's absolutely the most enjoyable part of my week is when I'm working on my hyperinsulinism time. Thank you so much. And um, we'll probably have you back on sometime later to talk about another leadership topic. Great. Well, thank you very much, Justin. For more information on Cook Children's Hyperinsulinism Center, go to cookchildrens.org slash hyperinsulinism.